Well, one of the things that has caused the most damage to Christianity today is what's been called easy believism. How many of you are familiar with that term? You've heard that term before, easy believism. Well, let me try to explain it to you if I could. The prevailing message of most Christian concerts and Christian youth rallies and events and camps and even Christian churches these days is that Jesus is great and he loves you no matter who you are or what you've done. And if you'll simply believe in him, you can be a Christian, which is really cool and a whole lot of fun. However, that message, while partly true, fails to explain the true nature of Jesus Christ and the true sacrifice that he requires of those who want to follow him as their Lord and Savior. And in a well-intentioned effort to make the gospel popular and palatable, many are diluting the message of salvation and thereby distorting what it really means to be a Christian. And it seems like the emphasis today is more on self-fulfillment than it is on self-denial. And this watered-down gospel that is so typical uh, to hear these days is, is usually presented in a casual, informal, relaxed atmosphere where you can come and meet nice people, you can hear some cool music and an inspiring message, and you get to go to heaven. And it creates this false impression that being a Christian is easy. But according to Christ himself, being a Christian was anything but easy. It was the hardest thing that you would ever have to do. Listen to a few of the radical, what I call de-invitations that Jesus gave throughout his ministry. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Mark records another Radical de-invitation. By de-invitation, I mean uh, statements that Jesus made, hard statements that drove people away. Rather than inviting people to him, he was driving people away. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Mark says, He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then in Luke, Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Luke records... Now large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And then we come to the Gospel of John. All the Gospel writers, at one point or another in their record of the life of Christ, included these radical calls to discipleship, to consider the cost of following Christ. And John is no exception. And in John chapter 6, we have been studying one of these radical deventations. We know it as the discourse on the bread of life. But Jesus said this in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And as we have learned the last couple of weeks, that was not an easy message to hear. Several years back, one of my mentors and a man I greatly respect in his understanding of God's Word, wrote a book entitled Hard to Believe. An interesting kind of punch-in-the-face title, right? Just hard to believe. And uh, the whole point of John MacArthur's book, Hard to Believe, was to point out the easy believism in the church and all the devastation that it had caused. And then when you look at modern methods of evangelism in contrast with what the Bible says and what Jesus said, that today churches and pastors and speakers make it sound easy to believe in Jesus when Jesus himself made it hard to believe in him. In the early days of of Jesus' ministry, as we've seen studying the, the Gospel of John, many people followed him. And claimed to believe in him, but he knew that not all of them were true believers. And at key points in his ministry along the way, he would say some hard things to separate the true believers from the false believers. To separate the sheep from the goats. To separate the the wheat from the weeds. And here in John chapter 6, we see an example of one of uh, Jesus' classic de-invitations, which was intended to drive away those who were superficially attracted to him and to draw to him those who were sacrificially committed to him. And so John here, as he's concluding his uh, record of Christ's sermon on the bread of life that he had preached in the synagogue in Capernaum, he tells us in verses 60 through 71 here, uh, really the mixed reactions that Christ received as a result of his sermon. And so this morning, we're going to see three reactions to the claims of Christ by three groups of people. The first reaction is desertion. And here, 
in verses 60 through 66, we're going to see an example of how unbelievers respond to Jesus Christ. And the second reaction is devotion. And in verses 67 through 69, we see how true believers respond or react to Jesus Christ. And then finally, the third reaction we're going to see is what we call deception. And in verses 70 and 71, we're going to see a group of people who we could call pretenders. And really, the whole point of the sermon this morning is this, that how we react to the claims of Christ proves which group of people we're part of. All of us here this morning fit into one of these three groups of people. We're either an unbeliever, a believer, or a pretender. And by the end of the sermon this morning, you're going to know exactly which group you're a part of. And so let's look at these three reactions from these three groups of people in this passage. Number one is desertion. Desertion. And here we have an example or an account of how unbelievers respond to the claims of Christ. Notice verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, right off the bat, you're like, well, time out. You said this is, uh, this is, these are unbelievers, but it says they're his disciples. Well, in this context, John used the term disciple to describe anyone who was attracted to Christ because of what he did, right, the miracles that he had performed, and appeared to accept what he was saying. But we're going to see throughout the rest of this passage that both John and Jesus make a distinction between his disciples and the 12. Notice verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, verse 70, Jesus answered, did I not myself choose you the 12? Verse 71, now he meant Judas, the son of Iscariot, for he was one of the 12. And so just because you were called a disciple of Jesus, in, the, in those days, didn't necessarily mean you were a disciple of Jesus. Just because you're, you call yourself a Christian, right, uh, today, doesn't mean you actually are a Christian. Notice what he says here. Therefore, many of his disciples, or you, we could simply say many of those who were following him up to that point, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? If you have an NIV or an ESV translation, it simply says, this is a hard saying. And they weren't complaining that what Jesus said was hard to understand. It was hard to accept. It was hard to apply. And in in this discourse that he had just finished about the bread of life, him being the bread of life, he he covered some of the most hard-to-believe doctrines of the Christian faith. He had talked about the incarnation, about how he had come down from heaven. Seven times he said, I have come from heaven. And, and by saying that, he was making himself equal with the Father, saying he was God. He also had addressed the doctrine of election. And we looked at that in, in multiple verses here in this text. All the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's a hard doctrine to get your mind around, to accept. He also covered the doctrine of substitution when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which was simply representative of his death on the cross. 
And so that was just a picture of the sacrifice he was going to make on the cross and, and that, that the people had to depend on his work on the cross for their salvation. And so all of this was, was offensive to the Jews. It was unacceptable to the Jews. It was unpalatable to the Jews. That Jesus was not trying to make his message palatable or popular. And notice verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Again, here's another example of Christ's omniscience, that he was God, very God, that he knew everything about everyone. We've been seeing this throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 47, when he met Nathanael, For the very first time, he said, Behold, an Israel indeed, whom there is no deceit. He could see right into that guy's heart. In chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking and what they were saying. And guess what? He knows exactly what you're thinking right now. And he knows what you've been saying and what you will say, right? Even if it's behind closed doors, even if it's in hushed tones, he knows exactly what you're thinking and saying. And he knew that these people were offended by the fact that he refused to assume the role of king. They wanted him to become the king and and, and liberate them from Rome. They were offended that he refused that. He also knew they were offended by the fact that he claimed to have come from heaven and was God's son. They didn't like that. He also knew they were offended by the fact that he insisted that if they wanted eternal life, there was only one way to get it, and it was through him, by believing in him and committing their life to him alone. And so he asked this question. He says, does this cause you to stumble? The, the word in the original Greek is the word scandalize. That this was scandalous. It's, it's the same word that's used later on in the New Testament uh, for scandalon or a stumbling block. You're probably familiar with these verses. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Paul said later in Galatians 5.11, he says, if, if I still preach circumcision, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And then Peter, later writing in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, he called Jesus a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, people would trip over Jesus because they would have expectations of what they thought the Messiah was going to be, and he didn't live up to those expectations. He was something totally different, and so they would trip and fall. And they would miss him altogether. When I was younger, I used to like to listen to a guy named Michael Card. Anybody ever heard of him, Michael Card? All of us, just three of us old people, okay? Um, Yeah, if you're... You're not our age, you probably don't ever heard of the guy, but he was a, a brilliant songwriter, very biblical in his, in his, in his lyrics, and uh, I used to love to listen to him, and one of my favorite songs he ever wrote was called Scandalon, and this is what he said, and, and by the way, when Peter 
said that Christ was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He was simply quoting Isaiah chapter 8. And so Michael Card wrote this in his song. He said, The seers and the prophets as foretold in long ago that the long-awaited one would make man stumble, that they were looking for a king to conquer and to kill, who'd have ever thought he'd be so meek and humble? He will be the truth that will offend them one and all, a stone that makes men stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And many will be broken so that he can make them whole, and many will be crushed and lose their own soul. Along the path of life there lies a stubborn scandal on, and all who come this way must be offended. To some he is a barrier, to others he's the way, for all should know the scandal of believing. In other words, it's a scandalous thing to simply say, all you must do is believe, and you'll be saved. But you must believe, truly believe, not just in your head, but in your heart. Notice verse 62. Jesus said, did this cause you to stumble? Well, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And here he, I think, was referring to his resurrection and his ascension. And he's basically saying, listen, if you think you're having a hard time now accepting the fact that I came from heaven, how much harder is it going to be for you when I come back from the dead and go back to heaven where I came from? And we just reverse the tape, right? And you're going to be seeing all this. And, and, and you're going to, you think you have a hard time believing that I came from heaven. What are you going to do when I go back to heaven? And I think Bruce Milne, Bruce Milne, one of my favorite commentators, nails it here. He says, far from easing his demands or reducing his claims in light of their discomfort, Jesus assures them of a greater cause for offense which lies in the future. Again, he wasn't backing off. He wasn't backing down at all. He was just continuing to ramp this thing up. He was making it hard for them to believe. And his point, I think, was that his ascension, his resurrection and his ascension would clearly prove the truth of his claim that he had come down from heaven. And then look at verse 63. He goes on. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And again, I think that Jesus was reiterating here that he wasn't speaking literally about flesh and blood. He was speaking figuratively or spiritually. And he makes it very clear here that eternal life isn't gained by anything that we do, but by the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. We talked about that last week. And if you don't have this phrase underlined and starred in your Bible, I'd encourage you to do it right now. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. Here it is, the flesh profits nothing. Underline that, star that. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, you cannot do anything to save yourselves. All of our human effort is useless to make us right with God. We can never do enough good things to outweigh all the bad things that we do. I tell you what, there's a whole lot of people who are banking on the fact that when they get to heaven or they stand before God, that their good works are some, somehow going to outweigh their bad works, and that's the standard by which God's going to use to determine whether or not they, they should go to heaven. As long as, well, your good works, you did, but your good works outweigh your bad works. Listen, there, a, a lifetime is not long enough to do enough good stuff to outweigh all the bad stuff that you already have done and that you will continue to do. You've thought enough bad thoughts alone to tip the scales. 
against you. And so therefore, we shouldn't put any confidence in the flesh. Paul understood this. He he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I want to do good things, but I can't. I don't. And then he went on in sharing his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the, what? Flesh. And he went on to list all the things that he had accomplished in life as a righteous Hebrew, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? And he, and he kind of listed, listed off what was on his spiritual resume, and he said, it's all garbage. Literally, it's all poop. That's what skubalon means in the Greek, right? It's all trash. It's all feces. It's, it's worthless. And he said, I put my confidence in Christ and what he did for me, not what I do for him. And so again, he's emphasizing here the Spirit's work in our salvation. It is the Spirit who gives life. And John said more about the Holy Spirit than any of the other gospel writers, and we're going to see more and more as we go on in this study uh, of who the Holy Spirit is and, and, and what his role is, and, and uh, I think we're going to uh, maybe even probably have to stop at some point and do a little mini-series on the Holy Spirit. But just let me give you... Um, uh, a preview, if you will, of some of what is to come regarding the Spirit. Notice in chapter 7, verse 38. John chapter 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Chapter 14, verse 16 After Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go back to heaven, he had to comfort them because they didn't like the sound of that. They didn't even want to consider life without Jesus. And he said in chapter 14, verse 16, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is your, to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, you guys stop trying to keep me with you because it's, it's a good, it's better that I go because then I can send the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, verse 8, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And verse 13, it says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. All that to say that without the convicting and illuminating and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, none of us would ever come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. It is the spirit who gives life. Notice verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. He said, I I spoke to you words of eternal life, but there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus, 
from the beginning knew who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Again, more evidence of Christ's supernatural knowledge. And, and, and what John is saying here is that Jesus knew from the beginning of time exactly who would not believe in him and even who would betray him. And then look at verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It was because of their unbelief that Jesus previously had said that no one could come to him unless it were granted to them by his Father. Verse 44, he's just repeating himself. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so again, Jesus is returning to this doctrine of election, God's initiation in salvation, how God chooses us and he draws us to himself. Sometimes it's referred to as predestination. However, there's a faulty um, explanation of the doctrine of predestination that's out there. It's floating around in the church today. And I think uh, people um, came up with it because it somehow helps them understand the doctrine of election or at least makes it humanly uh, plausible. And so this is what they say about predestination is that how this whole thing worked was God looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would believe and who wouldn't believe, and then he chose them accordingly. And if you looked at this verse, right, if this is all we had to go on, verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who, who it was that would dream you, they say, well, there's, there you go, there's proof that he knew. He looked down the course of time and he knew who would believe and who wouldn't believe, and so therefore he chose them accordingly. Well, if that's what you believe, then who is sovereign in salvation? Man, Right? That Jesus is, or God is simply responding or reacting to what we choose or what we would choose thousands of years later, right? Well, listen, God doesn't play defense when it comes to salvation. He plays offense, all right? And so the only reason why we would believe or did believe, right, is because God chose us to believe. And so belief and faith is the result of divine enabling, It takes God's act, an act of God. Salvation is an act of God. It's not a a human act. I mean, this is is an eye-opening, life-transforming thing, which Jesus calls us to, that none of us are able to bring about ourselves. And so God, through his Spirit, must awaken us from the dead and empower us to repent and believe. But at the same time, we are responsible to repent and believe and will be held accountable by God whether or not we repented and believed. And again, we see the tension here, the balance in verses 64 and 65 between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that we see this tension throughout the rest of Scripture. And then look at verse 66. He says, as a result of this, what's this? As a result of all that Jesus had been saying, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Why did they withdraw? Because they did not, what? Believe. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. 
As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. If you've got the NIV or an ESV, it says that they turned back. Many at this point turned back. Once these Jews who had been following Jesus for what they could get from him realized that he wasn't going to give them what they wanted, they said, fine, we're out of here. And so rather than delivering them from the Romans like they wanted, he demanded that they admit their spiritual bankruptcy and their total inability to save themselves. And consequently, their only option was to place themselves at the mercy of God's sovereignty and trust solely in his work on the cross, Christ's work on the cross to be saved, to be delivered from their sin. And all of this was just, was just more than they could stomach. It was not just confusing to them, it was downright disgusting to them, this whole talk about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. You gross, you're crazy, you're a maniac. And I think, frankly, it was just overwhelming to them. And F.F. Bruce summarized it well. He said, what they wanted, he would not give, and what he offered, they would not receive. And so they had no other choice but to what? To leave. He required more of them than they were willing to give, and so they rejected him, and they deserted him. You say, well, man, what category of person should I put these people with? It says his disciples withdrew. They weren't walking with him anymore. Who are these people? Well, clearly, they were not believers who abandoned the faith and lost their salvation, Because we know that's not possible, right? And so therefore, the only other option is that they were unbelievers who were never truly saved to begin with. And 1 John 2.19, I think, provides us a clue to who these people were. John wrote, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. He knew of what he spoke. He was there. He had witnessed this mass defection. And maybe he was thinking about this occasion when he wrote that verse in 1 John 2.19. And so we see unbelievers deserting Christ. Secondly, the second response or reaction here is devotion. And here we see true believers. How do true believers respond to the claims of Christ? Verse 67 So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And so on the heels of this mass defection, Jesus turned to the twelve and he asked them a question. I think it was intended to test the level of their commitment to him. So are you guys planning on going too? Are you guys going to leave me too? And then you got to love Peter, right? 68, verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so here's Peter, typical Peter, right? Quick to speak on behalf of the rest of the disciples. And basically what he said is, listen, how how could we leave you, Lord? Your teaching isn't anything like what we were used to hearing. You speak with authority and, and what you teach us, while it may be hard, we know it's true. And we're fully convinced that you are the promised Messiah and we're firmly committed to following you to the end. 
He called Jesus the Holy One of God, which is a, a messianic title that's not used very often in the New Testament, but it bears a resemblance to, to the expression, the Holy One of Israel, what we see often in the, in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah. I think it's also interesting that this, this expression, the Holy One of God, this title was the very same title Jesus was given by a demon-possessed man who, who, who he, he had encountered earlier in the very same synagogue in Capernaum. In Luke chapter 4, Luke records this, that uh, this, this man who was possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Boy, that must have sent a shiver up people's spine, right? Who heard this demon confess Christ. I know know exactly who you are. You know why that demon knew exactly who Jesus was? Because he had spent eternity, he had spent time with him in eternity past, right? We know the demons were uh, formerly angels, right? A third of them got swept out of heaven along with Satan in his rebellion. So every demon knows exactly who Jesus Christ is. And whenever they're in his presence, they, they can't help themselves but just to proclaim that he is the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And yet we know that even though demons believe in Jesus, they're going to spend eternity in hell. Why? Because they refuse to bow the knee to him as their Lord and their Master. James used demons as the classic example of, of someone who has false faith, that, that not, doesn't have true saving faith, that they, they believe all the right stuff, they have, all, they have their doctrine down, they're orthodox, and yet they're still unsaved. And he compares them to demons. They have demon faith. You know, if you're a true believer here this morning, I would imagine that at times you may have wondered whether or not you've been duped by all this Christianity stuff. I mean, it's bound to happen, right? Sometimes you question, you wonder, is, I mean, are we really just, you know, making this stuff up or is, you know, would I be better off out there in the world doing what they're doing? They look like they're having a lot more fun than I am because it seems like my life is hard, their life is easy, and, and why am I doing this? And, or I know that all of you who are true believers are at times tempted by the things of the world, right, to walk away from Christ and, and follow the path of, of, of sinful ways. And so I think it's in those times when we're wondering and we're wandering, even if it's just in our hearts, that we should ask this question to ourselves, okay, if this Christianity thing isn't true, where else would I go? If Jesus isn't who he said he was, well, to whom will I go? There's no one else who can offer what Jesus offers. Where else can I find what I found in Christ? And sometimes we need to just talk to ourselves, right? Ask ourselves questions and, and reason with ourselves with the scriptures. And I think this phrase, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Man, take that and use it to fight sin and to fight doubt. 
And so here these believers, these true believers, were devoted to Christ. And then there's a third category here, a third reaction to the claims of Christ, and we will just call that deception. Deception. And here we have an example of a pretender, somebody who pretends to be a Christian when they really aren't. Notice verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And so lest Peter think that he and the other disciples had come to this conclusion, right, that they had believed and had come to know him to be the Holy One of God, that, that, they, that they had come to that themselves, Jesus was reminding them that he had sovereignly chosen them. And I think maybe a better way to understand this as well, Jesus answered them, did I not myself not choose you? Probably this is better understood as not necessarily him, his sovereign choice from eternity past, but uh, his, his just selecting them, right? He was just, he sele- I selected you by hand, handpicked. I handpicked you guys. And John doesn't record the actual selection of his 12 disciples like the other gospel writers do, but this is the first mention of the 12 uh, in the gospel of John. And so I think he was just reminding them of that it was God who had led them to that conclusion, to that truth. They, could, they couldn't take any credit, like they weren't the smartest guys in the class. They figured it out, everybody else it didn't because they're dunces, right? But I think Jesus was also correcting Peter's wrong assumption that all 12 of the disciples that he had handpicked believed that Jesus was the Messiah. One of the 12 was under Satan's control. He was a pawn of Satan. He was a tool in the hand of the devil. He wasn't the devil. He was a devil, right? And he didn't share the same conviction about Jesus as the rest of them. Verse 71, John wants to make sure we know exactly who Jesus was talking about. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so now John was writing after the fact, right? At the time, he didn't know who Jesus was talking about. But in hindsight, after Judas had betrayed Christ, after he had committed suicide, John made sure that, that, that we knew, right? His readers knew who he was referring to. It was Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Iscariot literally means man of Kirioth, which was the name of a village in Judah where Judas was from. And so Jesus knew all along that there was a traitor in his midst, but none of the other disciples had a clue. I mean, when Jesus said this, none of the other disciples knew what he was talking about or who he was talking about. In fact, even when Jesus eventually exposed Judas in the upper room, when they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, it was still not obvious to any of them that he really wasn't one of them after all. Turn over to John 13 just real quickly. This is amazing. John 13, verse 21. Jesus was leading them in the Lord's Supper. He was washing the disciples' feet. And then it says, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. 
the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And when he said, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me, they're all looking around going, who would do that? And, and, and there was no one, there was no clear uh, person that, oh yeah, I, it's probably that guy. In fact, what they were asking was, is it me? Lord, Lord, is it I? There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We know that was John, right? He never mentioned himself by name in his gospel. And so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, hey, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. Hey, John, John, ask him. I mean, you're, you're buddy buddies with him. Why don't you, you probably know who he's talking about. Why don't you tell us? And leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? So again, John, John didn't even know. Who are you talking about? And then Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Even at that point, when Jesus had exposed Judas, they thought he, that Jesus had sent him out to run an errand. I mean, he was the guy that controlled the money box. I mean, how ironic is that? Who do you give the money box to? The most trusted guy in the group, right? The guy that everybody trusts the most. The last guy that any of them would ever thought would have been a fake. Would have been a a traitor. Again, I don't think this shows the undiscerning nature of the disciples I don't, I don't think it just shows how undiscerning they were. I think it shows how convincing Judas was. Chuck Swindoll, I think, said it well. He said, standing right in the midst of the chosen band of men was one who looked and sounded like the most sincere disciple. And James Montgomery Boyce asked the question, is it too much to say that there are Judases within the church today? Do you think that there are Judases in the church today? Obviously. There are some, Boyce goes on to say, who profess to be Christians, who even hold office in Christian churches, but who have never been born again, and who one day may openly turn their backs on all that they have stood for. Are we among their number? Could we be? Instead of a a glib answer, we should let that question go around among us as it went around the table in the upper room. Lord, is it I? Could I be one of these pretenders? We should search our hearts to see if we have really committed ourselves to the Savior. Judas was with Jesus and he didn't believe. Perhaps you are like him. You may have been raised in a godly home. You may have heard great preaching. You may have seen others believe, perhaps even in your own family, but you have never yet personally committed your life to Christ. Children and young people, this is a message for you this morning. 
You might just be riding on the coattails, right, of your folks and just kind of going through the motions and coming to church, but, but you're just kind of faking it. You're not the real deal. And I think at this very moment when, when Jesus was, was saying this, when he said that, that one of you is a devil, Judas knew that he was talking about him. And, and I think this was Jesus being gracious to Judas and giving him an opportunity to, to fess up to the fact that he was just a pretender and to get right with God, and yet we know he never did. And I would just say to you, I would say this to encourage you this morning, that if you're a, if you're a pretender in here today, whether you're young or old, that this is a gracious invitation to you today to admit the fact that you're just faking it and an opportunity for you to become a real Christian, a true Christian who's truly repentant and truly believes. What is your reaction to Jesus Christ? Desertion? Does that characterize your life? How about devotion? Is that more of what your life looks like, devotion to Christ? Or how about deception? What group of people do you fall into? Are you an unbeliever? Are you a believer? Or are you a pretender? Only three options. And I think the words of Christ in this text were intended then and now to draw true believers to himself and to drive false believers away from him. Beloved, being a true believer is not easy. It's hard. There's an incredible cost to following Christ. It could even cost you your life. There's a true story of a man from northeast India who along with his wife and children were converted to to Christ during the late 1800s through the efforts of a Welsh missionary. And the village they lived in was deeply entrenched in Hinduism and was brutally ruled by headhunters. And the village leaders were so enraged by this man's confession of faith in Christ that they decided to make an example out of him and, and so they arrested him and his family. And so they demanded that the man renounce his faith in Christ or his wife and children will be killed. And his initial reaction was simply to say, quote, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. And with this, his wife was killed right in front of him. Again, this man was told to recant his faith in Christ or his kids would be killed. And despite the threat to his children, he said this, though none go with me, still I will follow. And after watching his kids be murdered before his very eyes, the man was given one more chance to reject Christ or he would be executed. And the last thing it was reported that he said before he died was this, the cross before me, the world behind me. And as a result of this family's martyrdom, a revival broke out in that village and those who had killed this family repented and placed their faith in Christ. And the gospel 
began to spread throughout that entire region like wildfire and many others were converted to Christ. And this story, this astonishing story of this man's unwavering commitment to Christ spread as well throughout all over India and a famous Indian evangelist heard about the story and he took this man's dying words and put them to music. And the song became one of the, the, the first Indian hymns which is still sung today in Indian churches all across India and is even sung in churches here in America. You know it well. It's called, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. 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 No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. May God grant us similar grace to remain faithful, to follow Jesus Christ, no matter who turns away or turns back from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that you preserve for us in your word to accomplish your powerful purposes in all of our lives. I pray that you would, this morning, help each one of us to be honest about where we are at in our relationship with you and what category of people that we are in. Lord, I pray that you would help unbelievers here come to grips with the fact that they're an unbeliever. And Lord, that you would give them a desire to come to Christ. Lord, for those who may be just pretending, they've just been faking it, they've just been coming and going through the motions, Lord, that you would give them the, 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 the courage to come forward and, and admit that, and that you would grant them genuine repentance and faith, that they would be released from this burden, the guilt Lord, keeping up an act, Lord, that ultimately led Judas to kill himself, Lord, that they would just be relieved of that burden. And Lord, for those of us that are believers, we ask that you would give us continued steadfastness and boldness and firmness in our commitment to you, and that we would um, follow you unwaveringly, no matter the cost to ourselves no matter what anybody else is doing, even when we see people who claim to be Christians act in unchristian ways, Lord, when we see hypocrisy, and Lord, that it would just make us all the more committed to you. And so, Lord, help us to put into practice what we've heard today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.